Professor uh, Dershowitz, I want to thank you for coming on the 87th edition of, of Sports and Stuff. Uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz is the Emeritus Professor at Harvard Law School. I'll give a brief introduction. Alan Dershowitz is an emeritus professor, as I mentioned, at Harvard Law School. He's been involved in some of the most fascinating legal cases in U.S. history. His clients have included O.J. Simpson, Donald Trump, Mike Milken, Mike Tyson, the list goes on. Professor Dershowitz has also written about 40 books. He's the host of the Dersh Show podcast, which I highly recommend to people. Today we're going to have a discussion about Professor Dershowitz's career and, and some of his work and his thoughts on various issues. We're going to have a little special focus on sports today. Uh, Alan Dershowitz was involved in the Kurt Flood case back in the day, a famous baseball case. He's also uh, taught a baseball law class at Harvard. Uh, Professor, again, thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Well, thanks. You talk about the people I've represented. Let me tell you some of the people I've met. I mean, I met Jackie Robinson. I met most of the Brooklyn Dodgers from the 1950s because I went to high school around the corner from Ebbets Field and we used to go and watch them come in in the morning and greet them and get their autographs. Of course, my mother threw out my autograph book, which has all the great Brooklyn Dodger autographs. <laughs> and, you know, I was in the locker room when the Boston Red Sox won the World Series and, uh, I've had a lot of great sports moments. I was in the locker room when the Boston Celtics won the NBA championship, and uh, I was there when the Bruins won. So I'm, I've been a very, very uh, active sports fan since the 1940s. Love it. Well, there's definitely a sports side, Alan Dershowitz, oh, beyond yeah. your, your legal side. And hey, side. wait, by the way, I was also a varsity basketball player in high school. I played in Madison Square Garden. And the guy I guarded was a Ralphie Lipschitz. Now, you don't think you've heard of him, but you have, because he changed his name to Ralph Loren. And he was not a particularly great ball player, but boy, did he dress well. <laughs> Mr. Polo, I love it. I love it, all the people you've encountered, and you know, a little sports background there. So let me start with a hypothetical, Professor Dershowitz. Okay, if there was a National Lawyers Hall of Fame, no doubt you would be inducted. Put it in Cooperstown, put it in Texas, put it in Seattle, wherever. And there is a requirement in this National Sports Hall of Fame that the lawyer inducted must wear a college or university uniform. Would you go in with a Brooklyn College uniform, a Yale Law School uniform where you taught, or I'm sorry, where you attended, or a Harvard Law School uniform where you taught for decades? Which, I'm going to put you on the spot, which college or university would you pick? If you were inducted in the National uh, Lawyers well, I'm Hall of Fame, put you on, I'm going to put you on the spot. I never <laughs> would, I never would get inducted um, because uh, I defended President Trump on the floor of the Senate, and I would be blackballed the way I've been blackballed from a lot of events and canceled from a lot of events because we live in a political correct age. And although I think I'm the most successful criminal appellate defense lawyer probably in the history of the country, I've won more uh, reversals in murder and homicide and other related cases than any other lawyer, and although I've handled close to 300 cases, I would not get inducted into the Lawyers Hall of Fame. I'd be blackballed because I'm perceived as somebody now who's no longer on the left, but rather at the center. Uh, my support for Israel, my defense of Donald Trump, the fact that I was falsely accused of having sex with a woman I never met, uh, probably all exclude me from the Hall of Fame. But if I did get in, Clearly, I would wear my Brooklyn College colors because that's what made me. I was a terrible student in high school. I got into Brooklyn College by the skin of my teeth, and I finished first in my class among the men at Brooklyn College, and that really started my career. You know, I never got to be in my life. Straight C's in high school, straight A's in college. 
Well, what a, what an interesting answer. You, you you threw in the caveat you don't think you would get in because of your views, no. but but you would pick Brooklyn College. I was just curious of the universities you Without attended, a doubt. which one you picked. And it was also the best place I attended. Gotcha. I learned the most, and I think I had the smartest people, even compared to Yale and Harvard. Interesting answer. We're going to get into sports professor in a couple minutes, but I want to ask you something. This has always been on my mind, and I've, I've had civil lawyers and I have talked about this. We've talked about your position in the late 1990s, where you felt very strongly that President Clinton could have escaped impeachment if he defaulted in the Paula Jones civil case. Right. And, and for example, if he was not deposed, he may have been able to avoid the whole uh, impeachment fiasco. Very of fascinating. Course. But let me ask you something about this. Do you think President Clinton, though, could have really avoided not being participating in that case? Couldn't he have been subpoenaed at a default damages hearing? Couldn't he have possibly been held in contempt? I'm just curious if he could have really pulled off a non-participation strategy. He could have because of the mistake made by the plaintiffs. They sued him for a specific amount of money. It's called the ad damnum. And under D.C. rules, all he had to do was walk over to the clerk's office or have somebody walk over to the clerk's office for him deposit $750,000 in a cashier's check, the case would be over. There'd be no deposition. There'd be no contempt. There'd be no opportunity to commit perjury. And his lawyer didn't tell him he had that option. And I told him he had that option. And he was shocked. It happened on Martha's Vineyard at a dinner shortly after he was, uh, you know, obviously uh, clearly in, in trouble. And he simply was not aware that he had that option. And his lawyer just failed to provide him with the right information and the right legal advice. You think he could have completely avoided testifying in that case? Interesting. Without a doubt. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I know you've been asked many, many times about the OJ criminal case. I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. Any thoughts? on the civil verdict against O.J. Simpson? Do you think there was a factual and legal basis with the civil case against O.J.? Well, I think it proves that we didn't win the criminal case. The prosecutors lost it. Uh, They made every mistake in the book. Uh, They had him try his glove on uh, without trying it on before uh, in camera. Um, They allowed Furman to testify. What they did is, and... Uh, we made the smart decision of not having O.J. testify. Had he testified, he would have lost. And um, and he did testify, of course, in the civil case, and he lost. And they didn't make the mistakes they made in the criminal case. So I think it's, an, it's a very important lesson about how to try a case. Could O.J. have defaulted in the civil case? He could have. And, uh, and it would have been the same result because he, he was bankrupt and he couldn't pay the I don't remember $35 million in damages or whatever. So, you know, he, he could have defaulted. And uh, maybe California rules are different. I never checked because I was not his lawyer in the civil case. I was only a strategist in the criminal case. I was the God forbid lawyer, <laughs> okay. the guy who would have argued the appeal if he had lost. Well, I read your book, Reasonable Doubts, years ago. It was very interesting. Thanks. So, Professor, you were involved, and I, I learned this in one of our emails before the show started. I didn't know this. You were involved in the, the famous Flood versus Coon case. Right. And yeah. you were in a Kurt Flood's attorney. It's one of the most high-profile sports law cases in U.S. history. I'll just give the listeners uh, one or two sentences about it, and I want you to uh, share more. The Supreme Court, in a 5-3 to three decision, upheld the antitrust exemption first granted to Major League Baseball uh, years before. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that case? And why don't you share with the listeners your role in that famous case? Oh, sure. First of all, it's the most important case we ever lost. Because even though we lost the case, we got the reserve clause uh, taken out. And I don't think it would have been eliminated if we hadn't litigated uh, the case. So here's the story. I was a law clerk for Justice Arthur Goldberg. And uh, he then left the Supreme Court, went to work at a law firm called Paul Weiss. Then it was then Paul Weiss, Goldberg, Wharton and Garrison. And since he was a labor lawyer, a great labor lawyer, he was retained to represent Kurt Flood. He thought of it as a 13th Amendment case, slavery. He saw it in big, big, big terms. Now, Arthur Goldberg was a great man, but he didn't know a lot about baseball. So he asked me to come and advise him and work with him on some of the sports aspects of the case. And not only did I work with him, but uh, another young lawyer named Steve Breyer also advised him a bit. Steve Breyer now sits on the United States Supreme Court. He was also a clerk for Justice Goldberg. And, you know, we litigated the case both in the court of law and also in the court of public opinion, trying to turn public opinion in favor of eliminating the reserve clause. And ultimately, we lost in the court of law and won in the court of public opinion. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Justice Goldberg's role in that case, and I know that you clerk for him um, as part of your legal career. I had a law professor on my show last year, one of your colleagues at Villanova, a gentleman named Mitch Nathanson. And Mitch was very critical of Justice Goldberg's oral arguments um, in front of, the, of his old court, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in that case. It, it, what, what's your take on Nathanson's take on uh, Goldberg's work in the case? Reluctantly, I think he's right. Uh, I don't think justices generally should go back to practicing law. They're used to being too respected. And I saw Goldberg argue a couple of cases in the Court of Appeals. Uh, I, I'm told, I never saw him argue a case before he went on the Supreme Court. But I'm told he was a phenomenal oral advocate. He, of course, argued the famous steel seizure cases and many other labor cases. And he was regarded as one of the premier advocates in front of the United States Supreme Court. And I can understand why. He was brilliant. Once he was a former justice, I think it changed. And he should not have been making oral arguments. I saw him make an oral argument in front of the First Circuit in the Reverend Coffin case. That was a case involving... Uh, Dr. Spock and the anti-war movement. And, uh, you know, he was too much of a justice and not enough of an advocate. So uh, I didn't, I, I suspect that Nathanson's critique is probably justified. It pains me to say it, but I think it's probably true. Interesting answer. I was prepared for you to challenge Nathanson's critique. So uh, it, it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective. By the way, did you get to know Kurt Flood at all, uh, Professor? I met him, but I never got to really know him. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was determined, uh, to do what he thought was right, even though he knew it would hurt his career and hurt his standing and, uh, with major league baseball, but he was very determined, but I can't say I got to know him. I wish I had gotten to know a lot of other ballplayers, Hank Aaron, for example, uh, interesting story about Hank Aaron. So one day he was at Harvard, uh, invited to the dinner for, the honorary degree recipients and my wife and I were on it to the dinner. And of course, all the Nobel prize winners were gathering around, uh, you know, Hank Aaron, not anybody else. And so when it came time to seating, the seats were pre-assigned and who gets to sit next to Hank Aaron, but my wife. 
And, uh, you know, she's a baseball fan, but not like I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they talked a little bit about Atlanta because my wife went to college in Atlanta. And then she saw that I was drooling with jealousy. <laughs> and <laughs> after the appetizer, she discreetly came over and changed seats with me. And so I got to sit next to Hank Aaron for the rest of the dinner. And I asked him a question. I said, um, you're not the strongest guy in the world. You're not the fastest guy in the world. You weren't the most athletic guy in the world. And yet you were the greatest home run hitter of the history of baseball before steroids, obviously. How did you do it? And he said, very simple. He said, when I was a kid, we used to always choose odds and evens. You know, one times three, shoot. One times three, shoot. Odds and evens. He said, I could always predict whether the other guy was going to put out a one or a two. I just had an instinct of being able to see whether he would put out a one or a two. He's that's that's what batting is all about. He said it's either a one or a two, it's a fastball or it's not, and I could anticipate the pitchers. This was before videos, watching every pitcher and the statistics. He just had an instinct for whether he was getting that fastball or whether it was going to be a curveball or or a let up. And and uh, he said that's what gave me the real advantage. Unlike Bobby Thompson, who was told what the pitch was going to be when he hit the shot heard around the world that destroyed my Russia Hashanah and Yom Kippur in 1951. <laughs> Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with uh, law professor Alan Dershowitz. That's a great Hank Aaron story, and it was very nice yeah. of Mrs. Dershowitz to let you sit by him. Too, <laughs> I, so. I'll tell you, <laughs> I always loved her from the day I met her, but I never loved her more than on that day. Love it, love it. Um, real quickly, you mentioned Hank Aaron, another famous person who I know you know well passed recently, Larry King. And can you share a couple thoughts on Larry King's uh, legacy, Professor? Oh, Larry was fantastic. You know, we grew up a few blocks away from each other in Brooklyn. Uh, we played basketball and watched basketball in some of the same places, the, the Y, the Jewish Community Center. We both saw Sandy Koufax play basketball, of all things. He was the greatest basketball player in our neighborhood, we never had any idea that he was a pitcher. And I was on Larry's show probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 times right. as a guest. And one week I was even the host, the guest host. And I got to interview Joan Baez, who was one of my uh, heroes. So it, it was great. And, you know, Larry was just a nice guy, just a nice guy and smart as a whip. And he never prepared for an interview, but he... He was the audience. He knew what they were thinking and what they would ask. And so he would ask the questions. I, I really miss Larry. Larry once told me that he was much better at being a fiancé than a husband. Uh, <laughs> you know, we know he was married, I don't know, seven or eight times. He had great intuition with his questions. It's just a real, real skill set there. Professor, let me ask you about something else, kind of an extension in some ways, the Kurt Flood case. Do you think there could be a good legal argument one day that the NFL and NBA drafts could be illegal and could have raise some antitrust issues? The idea that a player gets drafted and he pretty much must play for a franchise. Do you see any legal issues one day where the drafts could be legally challenged? I can imagine that. I can imagine that, uh, you know, again, it depends on the antitrust exemptions. Um, normally, a private company couldn't do that. I mean, take, for example, if there was a draft from law school. Uh, this is an interesting story. If there were a draft from law school, I would have been the number one draft in, two in 1992. I would have won the Heisman Trophy. I would have been the number one draft. Why? I was first in my class at Yale Law School. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. I had written, I had published three 
major law review articles already by the time I was like 22. And, uh, and I was going to be a Supreme Court law clerk. Why am I bragging about that? For a very simple reason. I was turned down by 33 out of 33 law firms to which I applied. Uh, even though I was the number one draft choice, nobody wanted a Jewish kid whose parents came from Eastern Europe. So I couldn't get a job with any Wall Street firm. Those were the days of apartheid law practice in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, a little less in Washington, but certainly in New York. Would you, would you, if there, if there were a, a viable legal challenge to the NBA or NFL draft, is that a legal case you'd be interested in participating in? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for a very good reason. My son is deputy chief counsel of the National Basketball Association, and uh, we have a very sports family. So my son is high up in the legal system of the NBA. My niece was chief counsel for the U.S. Olympic Committee. Now she's chief counsel for the Aspen Ski Corporation. So I would have a conflict of interest. Um, I, I can talk about sports law, but I really can't litigate anything that would in any way create a conflict with my son or my niece. Completely understand. It's fascinating that your son and niece also work in sports law. It's really fun. Yeah. Paul Schneiderman, again, host of uh, Rainier, of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> Professor, I watched you inter- interviewed this week in that great Hank Greenberg documentary, and he was a famous uh, Jewish-American baseball player in the Hall of Fame. And let me ask you a question. Was Greenberg, in your opinion, definitely the most impactful Jewish-American athlete? Or do you think Mark Spitz and Sandy Koufax have a case to make there? I don't think they have a case to make. I knew Sandy Koufax, of course, and he lived on my block. And I knew him, and he was given to me as a gift for my 50th birthday by my wife who arranged for him to come to dinner. So I'm biased in favor of Sandy Koufax, but it has to go to Hank Greenberg because he was the first. He was the first Jewish superstar, uh, along with... Dolph Shays, who came a little bit afterward, by the way, you know, the great Dolph Shays story. Dolph Shays was once on a radio or television interview and somebody asked him about his sex life. And Dolph <laughs> Shays, of course, famously was married to the same woman and was totally faithful all of his wife. And he said, you know, between me and Wilt Chamberlain, we've had sex with 50,001 women. Chamberlain, 50,000 and him one. So... That's Hello. A, that's a fun story. That's a fun yeah. story. Um, very, very clever. Okay, Professor, I've asked this question to a whole bunch of guests. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm really curious to get your answer to these uh, two questions. Um, I've gotten the answer of F- Tiger Woods, Floyd Merriweather, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Sandy Koufax, this question. If you could have an interview or extended conversation with a living sports figure, it can be a uh, owner, an agent, a coach, a player, who would it be? Who's a living sports figure you'd love to have a chat with? Well, I mean, for me, it would be Sandy Koufax because it would be great to reminisce and go back to our days in, you know, in Brooklyn. Uh, and, but he's very quiet. He's very hard to have a conversation with. Um, you have to do most of the talking. When I had dinner with him over my house uh, back 30 years ago he was so taciturn and so quiet and he asked me to take him to the hotel he was staying in through the back door so that nobody would come over and approach him but he's a he's seen so much of history that 
uh, I would really love to have a conversation with him. You know, there are many, many others. Um, Bob Cousy would be somebody who would be great. Uh, there was there's so many. Bob Cousy, I think he's still alive, isn't he? He may have passed, actually, Bob Cousy. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's possible. I used to sit next to him a lot at Celtics games. I would sit next to Cousy and Havlicek and Larry Bird from time to time because I was a very close friend of Red Arback. And I would sit in red seats when I, uh, or, you know, the seats he had next to him when I would get self-esteem a lot. This is a lot of fun because we, we hear, you know, when I listen to your podcast, we hear about your, your ties to a lot of famous attorneys and politicians. I think this is a lot of fun for listeners to hear about some of your connections to some amazing sports figures. So it's, I think that's a, been a real treat to have you on to just hear you talk. you the sports figure who was, who was one of the most interesting. And that is, and people are going to be surprised to hear this, Mike Tyson, who I got to know very well because I went to visit him in prison. Of course, I represented him. Uh, he was the nicest guy you can imagine. He was sweet. He was very, you know, soft-spoken and the best, one of the best clients I ever had. He listened to me. He was just great. So he was one of the great sports figures who I got to know very well. And you always felt very strongly he was wrongfully convicted in that sexual assault case. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, one of the worst injustices that I have ever experienced in 55 years of practicing law. You've written about that case. Professor, who's a deceased yeah. sports person in history that you would have loved to have interviewed or have a conversation with that you never did? <sighs> Surely uh, Babe Ruth would be fascinating to talk to. Um uh, Joe Lewis. Uh, there are so many who I'd love to have spoken to. Uh, you know, some of the, the some of the Negro League baseball players would have been fantastic to talk to uh, and find out what you know really went on with Gibson and with uh, you know some of those just great ball players. I did see, um, having a senior moment, the great pitcher who came up much later in life from the Negro Leagues. You remember who I'm talking about? Satchel Page, right? Satchel Page. Yeah. I saw him play against the New York Yankees. He was on the Cleveland Indians, and uh, we all traveled up to Yankee Stadium to watch him. You know, he was probably 50 at the time. Do that, uh, you know, that uh, windmill pitch. It was amazing, but of course, it wasn't the real Satchel Page. And of course, Woody Allen uh, named his only uh, biological son after Satchel Page. Uh, he's now Ronan Farrow, but he was born Satchel. And uh, great stories about, about him. Didn't know that. It's a lot of fun, Professor, to hear you mention some of those great African-American players that were barred from playing yeah. in the major leagues. So it's, it's oh, fun yeah. to have, hear you recognize those great players. Paul Schneiderman, again, when, sports. When, when Jackie Robinson came up, I was 10 years old, and we arranged for the rabbi who hated baseball <laughs> to give him a blessing. We gave him, we invented a Hebrew name for him. We came up with Rob, Steele, Gnove, and then Son. And we asked the rabbi, we said, a new person came to the neighborhood and just got a new job. Please give him a blessing. And he gave him a blessing. And the next day, Robinson hit a double. So it made me a real believer. Great stories. Professor, you taught a baseball and law course at Harvard Law School. I, I never had the grades get into Harvard Law, but I would have loved to have taken that course from you. Um, can you share some other important sports law cases that have always interested you that you can share with the listeners? Well, of course, salary caps have always been interesting. Uh, you know, how, how sports are dealing with COVID now has been absolutely uh, remarkable. Uh, you know, 
just just uh, we we just had a lot of fun. And the last class we always held in Fenway Park, and I taught it with uh, one of the Red Sox uh, owners, and so uh, Larry Lucchino, who was a graduate of Yale Law School as well, and uh, so we we had a great time. Uh, teaching about collective bargaining, negotiations, and all of that. It was a great course. We really enjoyed it. Taught sure. it for I think three years. Sure, sounds like. And it. and and uh, um, we had some of the ball players come to the class uh, and uh, give us their experience as ball players. Kevin Euclid was then the representative, I think, to whatever, and he came to my home and uh, and uh, you know talked about how it is to be a ball player and also being involved in some of the legal issues. Another great Jewish-American player, Kevin Nicholas, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, professor, there's been a lot, of, some litigation going on right now over college players' rights. There's been a lot of NCAA litigation, right. you know, the college pay issue, benefits. Any general thoughts on uh, some of those legal issues surrounding college sports, including the college pay well, issue? I think that the college players should have money put into funds for them particularly those that don't make it into professional sports. And I think there should be some compensation. I wouldn't compensate the ones who then got, you know, giant uh, contracts with the NFL or the NBA or uh, MLB, but those who gave their lives and their hearts and their legs and knees and injuries to college sports and then didn't get anything out of it later, I think there should be a fund set up to compensate them for afterward, at least a retirement fund, something, a college fund for their kids, something to compensate them. Would you like to see some workers' compensation laws apply to college athletes, for example? As I college? would. I would, yeah. That's a big issue right now. Um, another, another, some other sports legal, another sports legal issue that comes up a lot are the issues of franchise relocation battles. I had the late U.S. Senator sure. Slade Gordon on my show. He represented my state, Washington State, for about 18 years. And Senator Gordon sponsored some legislation that would have made it harder for professional teams to leave their cities. Do you have any, any thoughts on, uh, relocation battles? I mean, that's hard. I mean, I think that teams... Uh, cities can condition or states can condition giving bonds or payments or subsidies to teams on condition that they don't leave for a time. But that would be more contractual than it would be kind of legal. I, w- I would hate to see laws passed that deny um, owners and teams the right to make the decisions that they think are best for their players and their ownership. But I think that if they're beneficiaries of anything from the city they can require that there be some payback for that i only have another minute or so so okay. if you have any other questions yeah i do let please. me let me get one more quick question into you uh really enjoyed this you spoke out in your podcast i believe the other day that you believe kurt schilling is getting blackballed from the hall of fame and the hall of fame criteria professor states that shall be voting shall be based upon the player's record playability integrity sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams on which the player played. Now, Schilling's made some controversial remarks about transgender people and so forth. Uh, do, do you think a writer it would be exercising his or her discretion poorly, saying, look, I just don't think this guy has the character to get in the Hall of Fame? I don't think that should be the criteria. I think the criteria should be on the, on the field uh, baseball ability. Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. You should have an asterisk saying nobody should learn from him. You should have an asterisk next to Kurt Schilling. But I was there when Kurt Schilling won for the Boston Red Sox, and we were down 3 nothing against the Yankees 
And he did it, and he won the World Series. Just that month period was enough for me to justify him being in the Hall of Fame. So I don't like his politics. I don't like his positions, but I don't care about them as a baseball fan. You don't want to take Ty Cobb out of the Hall of Fame or Babe Ruth or some of the others who had real character problems. Maybe they should just remove that character criteria in the Hall of Fame. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Well, Professor, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Sports and Stuff. Oh, me too. Had a lot of fun with this, and I'm going to continue listening to your podcast. I really appreciate you doing this, Professor, and always the best. Great. Be well. Take care. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.